Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 8. It is without fail, every time I get ahead in the order of worship and or sermon prep and things like that, I get sick or have something happen where I can't be in the pulpit. So not Matthew 9, instead the sermon that was prepared a couple of weeks ago, Matthew chapter 8. We're going to start reading in um, verse 14, even though we're really not going to start the text until 18. So Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds? See, obey him. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, 
All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. God's word for us. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we would understand and believe. We cannot do this on our own, and so we ask your spirit to be pleased to work within us even now. For Christ's sake, amen. Summer after my first year in college, I came back, had to get a job. Didn't like the idea of finding a job, but needed to find a job and ended up working at Calvary Church up on Providence Road in Carmel. I worked landscaping and general maintenance, basically lowest guy on the totem pole because I was the most useless, and it's the truth. I know that's not a big stretch to imagine, honestly. The highlight of the summer, though, was when we were digging a a hole with a backhoe, and thankfully it was my boss, it wasn't me. He nicked the nine-inch water main or whatever it was, and that created a bit of a problem and ended up working for 23 hours straight as we figured out how to get the water restored to the preschool and everything. It was the most insane experience. It was fantastic as a college kid. I loved it. I got to learn. It was a lot of fun. The highlight of it all, though, was near the end of the process. Again, I think we had been working for something like 18 hours straight at this point, and uh, the pipe had been fixed, the hole had been refilled. It was massive. It was like 20 by 25 by 25. It was huge. You could have driven a car and lost it. Been refilled with dirt, and they brought in this amazing little machine called uh, a, a tamper, which I had never seen before. Some of you already know where this is going because it's a wonderful little piece of equipment. It's a a steel plate about that big attached to more or less a lawnmower engine. And once you hit the gas, it just takes that steel plate and goes womp, 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 womp on the ground about that fast. And honestly, if you're good at using this tool, you can use it with probably two fingers and a thumb. Because if you keep it perfectly upright, it's amazing how it just continues to thump the ground and pack the dirt and compress it so it's tight around the pipes. Well, all six foot, 135 pounds of me climbed into the hole to tamp it down as my boss and co-workers handed me the tamper and proceeded to giggle behind their hands because they knew what was about to happen, though I had no idea. See, the key is, if the tamper's perfectly straight up and down, perfectly balanced, you can steer it with two fingers and a thumb, but if it gets slightly offline, thump, 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 it, it is like riding a horse that has sniffed chili peppers. It is the worst experience of your life. 45 minutes, an hour of trying to steer this tamper. My arms were just jello. My back was about to explode. I climbed out of the hole and thought I was going to die. Next coworker hops down, fires it up. No problems. It's intriguing how Christianity, and in fact, much of life is very much like interacting with one of those gas-powered tampers. If you've got it in excellent balance, it is a lovely thing that works so wonderfully well. But the second that you get things kind of off-kilter, the second you get them kind of off-line, get them out of balance, my goodness, it takes you for a ride, and you get tossed all sorts of ways and all sorts of directions. And interestingly... The whole purpose of a tamper is that it's easier. 
It requires less energy than just taking a pole and smashing it into the ground. It makes life better. It makes it more enjoyable. It makes it where you have to work less hard. But I can tell you right now, I don't think I've ever worked harder than trying to use one of those incorrectly. I suspect Christianity is much the way for many of us when it's in balance, when it's done correctly, when we have our hearts directed to the Lord in obedience to His Word and in obedience to His will. It is true, Christ saying that His burden is easy. The yoke of obedience to Him is not a heavy one. But for some of us, we've gotten that kind of out of kilter a bit. And we find our Christianity to be exhausting. We find our Christianity to be wearisome. We find our Christianity to be taxing on the soul. We find it to be the most difficult thing we've ever done. And friends, more often than not, that says something about you more than it does your Christianity. We know our God is good. We know his promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus himself has said that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. In fact, actually, I think 2020 has been unbelievably useful for this in many areas of the church as it's showcased, actually, how we were using the tamper incorrectly. It's effectively been like turning the gas up on it, where it's just you know, shaking even faster. I suspect that's why 2020 has been so devastating to so many parts of the American church, is that we've actually been doing it incorrectly for so much of our lives, we've just never had the opportunity to see our failings quite so clearly. It's interesting to see the Christian sociologists already panicking as they're beginning to wonder what percentage of the American church never comes back. Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 30%? There are some that are guessing it might be as high as 40% of Christians never return after COVID. Or at least those that profess Christ. It won't be that high, I don't think. It's been interesting to see how this year has been God's gift to us to show us in so many ways to show us the shortcomings, the failings of our own opinions where they do not line up with Scripture. And to quote the ever young Mike Tyson, certainly in light of last night, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And it seems like for many of us this year, we have and haven't fully known what to do. It's interesting, I think Matthew chapter 8, the latter part of this chapter, Matthew makes commentary and Jesus makes commentary on Christianity and its nature. What does discipleship look like? Matthew compiles these stories. In fact, actually, most of them here, he includes the abbreviated version. Both Luke and Mark include longer versions of almost all of these. 
Because Matthew's trying to compress them to get an idea into our minds as to what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Jesus has in verse 14, this is significant what happens. He walks into Peter's house where Peter and his wife, his mother-in-law, and his brother are all living. Out of the kindness of his heart, the mercy of God, he reaches down, he heals this woman miraculously by the word of his power, and she is restored to strength, she's restored to health, and she's restored to service. And building on that, verse 16, they bring him everybody from the region that is sick. Everybody from the region that is oppressed by demons and possessed. And I would remind you again, it's not like today where we have medical doctors that are brilliant, brilliant men and women that are able to see inside the body and discern what things look like from the inside out. Medicine 2,000 years ago is a very different experience, very frightening. Demonic possession, no less true today. Just for the record, if you don't actually think about this, demonic possession is, is no less true today. It happens today. We probably don't see it that frequently in the West, though it certainly, certainly happens. But if you doubt it, go work at a mental hospital for a year and a half. That's what it did between college and seminary. and It'll change your mind. Go to Africa for a couple of years. It'll change your mind. These poor folks, and I don't mean financially poor, I mean these poor, depressed, oppressed uh, folks living with just the difficulty of a fallen world of of sickness and, and demonic possession, they're flocking to the Lord Jesus because here's someone who can actually change things for them. Here's someone who can actually improve them. Rather than watching your child with a fever and hoping the fever breaks and the kid doesn't die. Here's the one who can save the child. In fact, actually, here's the one who can raise her from the dead if he wishes. And you can see how what would happen from that is that word would spread very rapidly. And what happens in verse 18, a massive crowd has formed. At this point in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, he's not actively trying to maintain a crowd, but one has built around him, and so he gives orders to go to the other side of the lake. It's not time to build the gigantic crowd that would get him crucified. He's very intentional. Brilliant strategist planning out his steps as he goes. And as he's going to the other side, you have this just unbelievably kind of quick interchange here in verse 19. A scribe, this is one of the educated type, those in the elite academic kind of class, those that would know more, says to him, teacher, rabbi, look, I'll follow you absolutely anywhere. You cross the lake, doesn't matter, I'll cross it too. You hoof it for Jerusalem, I'll go there too. You stay here in Capernaum, I don't care, I'll follow you. I I will be your follower. And that word follower in that sense is what's translated in our New Testament as disciple. That's what disciples did. They followed a rabbi, a teacher, and listened to their teaching and tried to imitate it to the best of their ability. And Jesus here seizes this opportunity to instruct the crowds around him what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and you would have to think again, if this were American, 
If this were the American church, what kind of message would the American preacher deliver? You've got the the massive crowds there. They're all ready to listen. You have these huge numbers of people. They're ready to follow Jesus. You even have unexpected people like this scribe saying, Jesus, we'll follow you anywhere you want to go. What's the American preacher follow up with, right? Something happy to make them feel good, to to encourage that momentum, something to to strengthen them in their zeal, something to to push them along, to be more excited, to, to build the energy, to build momentum. And certainly momentum's not bad. Jesus doesn't do that, though. Jesus instead gives them the truth. What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be one who follows the king? And first, kind of just initially blush right here, is it it means you're going to be outside the crowd. Because here you have this gigantic mass of people that are there for what they can get out of Jesus. They're there to be physically healed. They're there to be freed from this oppression by demons. They're, They're there to benefit themselves. And Jesus instead challenges their perspective. We'll look at four challenges that he gives. Jesus is going to challenge their and our understanding, our value, the importance of our finances. It's interesting, the scribe would actually have had one of the very few jobs that would have been reliable in this time. He's not really reliant on agriculture. If there's a tremendous famine, it doesn't impact his career. It's not like he's taking taxes dependent upon him. People have to have documents done, and he's the guy that would do documents. Think of it as uh, the notary public, except far more important, because everything written legally went through this person. Kind of somewhere in between that and a lawyer today. They would have known the scriptures probably as well. His job would have been one of the ones that would have been safe and stable, that he would have had a constant source of income. And it's interesting, when he says, Jesus, I'll follow you everywhere, I'll follow you anywhere, what does Jesus answer to him? Foxes have a place to stay. Birds have a place to stay. But the Son of Man has no place to stay. A lot going on in that brief interchange, that short sentence. First off, it's the first usage of Son of Man anywhere in the New Testament. And it's significant here because Jesus is highlighting kind of two elements of his ministry. He's highlighting in in describing himself as the Son of Man that his ministry is going to come in two waves. They don't understand this yet, but we looking back at it can understand that his ministry is in two parts. It's first a ministry of humiliation and then a ministry of exaltation. He comes to to be meek and lowly at first, and then victorious and mighty in the second. It's interesting because the scribe, in many ways, is presuming the second and hoping to skip the first. I don't want a a ministry of humiliation. I don't want to have to walk the path that Jesus has tread in that regard. I don't want to have to be one who is meek and lowly. It doesn't seem to wear quite so well for me. 
Jesus also uses Son of Man to kind of gradually reveal himself for the Jews here, uh, referencing Daniel and other places, highlighting that he is the very God who has made them, but acknowledging that at this point in his ministry, he doesn't have an earthly home. He doesn't have a place to stay. He doesn't have a steady job. He doesn't have steady income. He doesn't have tremendous finances. He doesn't have massive wealth at his disposal. Not the kind of guy who could plan out his meal plan, you know, 38 days in advance. His life was one of poverty at this point. I suspect, again, for many of us, talking about getting our Christianity in balance and out of balance, for us, Christianity feels right when it aligns with wealth. It feels right when we're being financially prosperous. It feels right when we're making a good wage and a good income. It feels right when we're doing well. I'm going to tell you right now, praise God, I don't think this has been that much of an impact for this specific body. But the American church as a whole, this has been absolutely a a catastrophic reality for so many of our brothers and sisters, or so many that have called themselves that. As this calendar year, we've watched wealth change for them, or jobs change for some of those who have professed Christ, and it's interesting to see, oh, did Christianity align with that, or was it that actually I value my money more than I do my Christ? I'll be honest, that's the decision that I'm most, well, I I hope the Lord does not place the American church in. Out of all the decisions, the choice between our money and our God, I suspect we'd lose far more than 40%. I suspect we'd lose far more than 50%. To think that with that one decision, I, I suspect more than half of American Christians suddenly dry up and disappear just like that. We've placed an inordinate value on our money, on our wealth, on our resources to say this is our God, this is our safety, this is our pleasure, this is our hope. Well, that's already hurt our feelings and that's just the first of the four. Jesus doesn't stop there. Matthew doesn't either as he now strings another one on that, as for many of us, if the first one didn't get you, the second one probably will. Another one of the disciples, the men who's following Jesus, says to him, Lord, I, I, I implied, I love you, I'm excited about you, I want to follow you, I want to be your disciple, I'll kind of follow you anywhere. Give me a moment to go take care of my dead father. My father died, I need to bury him. And Jesus here at this moment shatters any impression that we might possibly have of the overly nice, saccharine, sweet Jesus that we have been lied to about so many of us. 
(laughs) Jesus looks at him and says, follow me and let the dead deal with themselves. There's two categories of people he's implying, those that are alive, those that are with Christ Jesus, and those that are dead, either spiritually or physically. Either way, they're not with him at the moment. I mean, if you were in the South and you heard any pastor say this to one of his parishioners, you would go, oh, that's so rude. Can you believe he said that? The gossip that would happen, the whisperings about how harsh the minister had been. I can't believe he would say something like that. I mean, can you really imagine that? Jesus looking you square in the eye and saying, look, I know family relationships are important, but they're nothing compared to me. Those children that you raised, that you love with all of your heart, that you would give your life for without ever thinking about twice, if you can't just walk away from them to follow Christ, that's not discipleship. That parent that raised you, that you love with all of your heart, that you delight in, that is the joy of your soul, that always makes you feel better because everybody, when they're sick, they just want their mommy to take care of them. If you love that person more than you love Jesus, that's not discipleship. You see, what Jesus is challenging us to here is challenging us to view him as being worth something more than our money and to see him as being worth more than our spouse or our children or our family or, and and this is kind of the big issue here, the sentiment. Any sentiment, any sentimentality, anything that we love, that we cling to, that we care for that is earthly. And again, thankfully 2020 has only forced us into minor little challenges to think through. Think about again what this service would look like if you knew you had to be taken all of, have all of your money taken away from you and your children and your spouse and your parents taken away from you. Would we have very many people in the room this morning? doesn't stop. Matthew continues again here with an abbreviated version of the calming the storm. He intentionally punches on one specific part of this in a way that Luke and Mark don't. Jesus gets in the boat. The disciples hop in with him. Again, remembering most of them are accomplished sailors. Jews hate the sea. These guys were not the smartest men, but they certainly were the bravest. I mean, these would think, we think kind of firefighters of our day, heroes, really wonderful, marvelous folks. And a storm hits them and hits them in such a way that they're freaking out and they think they're going to die. Jesus is out cold, sound asleep. It would have been amazing to see, right? The boat's about to swamp. Waves are coming up over the side. Jesus is out. And they go and wake him up, verse 25, shake him, rouse him. Save us, Lord. Now, notice the English here. It's not all capitals. They're not ascribing deity to him here. They're acknowledging that he is their rabbi. He's their teacher. He's their master. Do something, save us, help us, we're perishing. I suspect uh, there's probably some idea here of his miracles, but not to the extent that they're about to see. 
Matthew does something interesting, though, is that he highlights the order of what takes place next. His grammar is very particular. Jesus rolls over, looks at them in the face, and says, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Storm still raging around. Makes no effort to solve any of their problems, but raises a question, a gentle rebuke. It's very kind. It's very gentle, but it is very firm. Why are you freaking out? Why are you panicking? Do you not think your God loves you? Do you not think your God cares for you? Do you not think your God knows what he's doing? And then he gets up and tells the waves to go away. Matthew highlights the order of that and it's significant because it's unique to him and acknowledging the Lord is, he's giving the rebuke in the midst of the difficulty, not after it. It's why it's important that we engage difficult sermons like this one in the middle of 2020. Not 2021, which will be worse, most likely. Do we really believe that our God knows what he's doing? To believe that he's placed you in this time and space, do you really think he doesn't care about your safety or care about your heart or care about your faith? Do you think he doesn't care? Well, I think most of us say, well, no, of course God cares. That's what God, he he always cares. Okay. Okay. And every bit of our kind of panicky that's been happening this year is really an exercise in little faith. Jesus challenges our thinking on our finances. He challenges our sentiments, our affections. He challenges even our commitment to safety and self-preservation. It's intriguing how much we hear conversations today in 2020 and others about just we have to protect ourselves, have to protect our hearts, have to protect our minds. It's all about this kind of just love affair with being safe. It's interesting. So much of it at its core is just a lack of understanding that God knows what he's doing. (laughs) He's not an idiot. I might be. He's not. Lastly, and this is the one I think that is the most interesting to me, Gadarene demoniacs here in verses 28 and following, this is again told slightly differently here in Matthew instead of the way Luke and Mark tell it. You're probably more familiar with the Luke one. Uh, Matthew highlights that there's two men instead of one. What's happened here is these two men are demon-possessed. They're demon-possessed by a horde of demons that call themselves legion. Uh, These men are horrible, horrible cases of sadness. Again, demonic possession is uh, one of the worst things I could imagine any human ever experiencing. A spiritual being that comes in to the inside and begins to take control. It's the really emotional and and 
spiritual and personal equivalent of like rape from the inside out. Horrible experience. It's why the Gospels use these category of people as the most pitiful and pitiable of all humans to have ever existed. These guys are, are particularly sad cases. We know by this point in their oppression, they're not wearing any more clothes. They're running around uh, in their birthday suits. They live in the tombs outside of the region of the Gadarenes. They're living with the dead, sleeping with bodies as they decompose. The men are not healthy and they're not right. The problem is the demons that possess them give them strength and violence. And every time anyone tries to pass up or down the road, these two men come out of the tombs and destroy whoever tries to pass. Again, the most pitiful of all humans. And interestingly, as Jesus goes to pass that way, you have to think at some point his disciples were like, I don't want to go this way. Can we go that way? Jesus takes them down the road. The two demoniacs come out and they begin to scream at the Lord Jesus. And interestingly here, they ascribe him divinity from the very beginning. They know exactly who he is. At this point, we've had the angels proclaim him to be God. Now we have the demons proclaim the same. What do you want, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before time, before the end of the world? What what are you doing? Interchange takes place and Jesus sends them into a herd of pigs and the demons then take the pigs and go and kill themselves. The interesting thing though is we find out kind of from the rest of the story is that the shepherds, I mean the, uh, the herdsmen are absolutely freaked out of their minds. They're terrified and you know what? Rightfully so. Things to be afraid of, this is on the list of genuine things to be afraid of. Not for Christians, but if you're not a Christian. They go fleeing back to town, they tell everybody in town, and interesting thing is, you would think the town would come out and say, you know what, hey, thanks, now we can travel that road and it's all right. I mean, you think about it, if we had two lions that were living on Highway 160, and every time somebody tried to drive up or down 160 over here, the lions came out and ate them. When somebody killed the two lions, there would be a big parade, wouldn't there be? They'd be all over the internet and all over the news in Charlotte. Everybody would be excited. Hey, look, this person got rid of the lions. Jesus has taken care of the the demon-possessed men. Jesus has gotten rid of them, and now it's safe to travel on this road. And what happens? The entire town comes out to him and is like, nope, nope, we're not interested. You need to go. They're more interested in the status quo than they're interested in real and genuine change. They're more interested in just kind of maintaining the way that life has been because they know they're the ones that are at least on the top half of the pile. They don't want anything to be changed. They don't want the apple cart to be upset. They don't want anything to be different. And so now Jesus is changing the equation and it's bothering them because they don't know who's in charge anymore. And it's interesting, Jesus here again is challenging us in the same way. We tend to, even those of us that like change a lot, we love the status quo. 
because it feels safe. It feels like we can be in charge. It feels like we can be in control. I suspect for many of us, this has actually been one of the hardest parts of 2020, is that the status quo for many of us have just disappeared. Public health, the media, politics, your job, how you interact with your family, everything's different. I spent Thanksgiving in a room by myself on day 12 of a 14-day quarantine. Can't tell me the status quo is being maintained. You see, what Jesus is challenging us to consider, he's challenging us to consider the things that we are placing more highly than our Savior and to expose our false commitments. And just in these four paragraphs, Matthew goes at us hard, doesn't he? What do you like more? Do you like your money? Do you like your family? Do you like feeling safe? Do you like the status quo because it feels like you can be in charge? Right, that right there describes pretty much all of human existence. The things that we love and value the most. It's not surprising then that we see what happens at the end of the chapter here. Everyone begs Jesus to leave. Because they understand what he's demanding of them. They they like him when he gives them things. They hate him when he demands things. I suspect for many Christians this year has been so hard because we've spent most of our lives being given things. And for many of us, this has been one of the very few years of our lives where he's actually required something from us. It's one of the very few years of our lives for many of us where we've actually had to figure out, are we going to be obedient to the Lord or are we going to just say, no, I'm going to do it my way. Am I going to be the one that only says that which is edifying? Or am I going to run my mouth? Like my country tells me I can. You see, the solution to this is a little bit more complicated than just do better. That's what we like to think as Americans is that I failed at something, I'll just do better. I failed in this way, I just need to work harder, I just need to do better, I can be better, I I can do this. I'll be ready for 2021 no matter what it brings. Have fun with that. No, in fact, actually, the, the interesting thing here is how Matthew tells these stories. He's not just challenging us to contemplate the things that we value more than our Savior. He's showing us why that's bad business. He's showing us why that's foolish. Because just as he's, he's challenging us to think about these things, he's also holding forth for us a, a beautiful portrait of what the Lord Jesus is. 
Yeah, the Lord doesn't have uh, a home. He didn't have a place to rest his head. He was a poor, borderline starving to death rabbi. Homeless guy, effectively. Living off of the hospitality of others. For a season. And then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Where he has no lack because he made it all. He has no need for he is God himself. He's not just in in the highest of heavens. He's with God himself at his right hand. Even in his physical human body. Jesus can challenge us to say, look, he's bigger and better and greater than anything this world has to offer. Jesus says he knows that because he made this world and he's going to be the one to destroy this world and he's going to be the one to remake this world. He is far better than this world. Interestingly, challenges us to not even value our human relationships, those that are most dear to us, our our children or our spouses or our parents, those that we love the most. He, He says, look, that is a secondary relationship at best. Because the Lord is the one who created relationships. That loving affection that you have for that person, that intimate relationship, that tenderness, that kindness, that love, that joy that you find in them is simply a reflection of God's image in us. It's what it means to be made in the image of God. He is the God of relationship. And honestly, once this kind of veil that is in front of us uh, where we see him Not fully clearly yet. When we pass into the life to come and that is removed and sin is taken away, every relationship that we have here now will be surpassed in the life to come. I mean, I'll give you an example. I've been married 16 years, I think. I think. Should the Lord allow for us to live a long time, and that hits a 50 years, be an old man. You realize on the day that the Lord takes us home, and I meet her in glory, I will know her better there than I ever have here. Because I will know her without her sin, and I will know her without my sin, which I have never done. In this place. My children that are so precious to me. If the Lord is going to take them away. Those relationships in the life to come will surpass them. Any of the best days of life in this place. And even in those most terrible of situations where loved ones that we care for but we will not see in heaven. Our Lord is great enough to compensate for even that. What that will mean 
to miss those people in a way without sorrow and tears, I don't understand. I'm just thankful I will be equipped to do it. Jesus showcases further here, even as he he rebukes them for their lack of faith and trusting that God takes care of them. I love how just kind of passively Matthew even says it. And then he just stood up and was like, just go away. And the storm leaves. It's like it was nothing for him. Eh, just go. It's like he's scolding a child. Stop doing that. And the waves are like, okay, I'm done. I'm out. Sorry. Immense power, immense glory, immense strength. Applying his power on behalf of his people. I love how it's implied in this that he's saying as part of his rebuke, you don't need to be afraid because God the Father loves you. I've taken care of that. If you're a child of God, Jesus has taken care of that. You have the Father's favor forever. You never have to worry about does God hate you. He doesn't because Jesus loves you. I love the last one too. I mean, being honest, most of us having grown up or spent all of our lives, most of us, but not all of us, spent most of our lives in the West, demonic possession is not a thing that most of us have had experiences with, at least not regularly, and thankfully so, I guess. But I love how Jesus showcases here that he's wise enough and powerful enough to take care of even the things we don't understand. Those bits and bobs of your life that you just don't get, don't make sense to you, Beyond your understanding, whew, you just don't have enough wisdom. The Lord handles that as well. I would end simply with this. Much like that young man getting tossed around by that tamper, I had to acknowledge I had it out of balance. And the result of it was, it was throwing me every sort of which way, and it was exhausting. I learned how to use one, because over the next several hours, I asked my coworkers to teach me, so that I could get it balanced, and get it flat, and realize, oh, this is way more fun when you do it right. I suspect for some of us in the room, honestly, this is really the situation we're in currently. We have found our Christianity to be exhausting. Maybe it's something that we might even whisper, though certainly not to the pastor, but we might even say it's been miserable. Or maybe even worse yet, it's just something we don't ever actually think about because we just don't care. And if you find yourself in that category, I would simply humbly encourage you It's time to repent. Jesus is bigger than you will ever understand. It's time to repent. You got your Christianity out of balance. It's out of whack. The problem is not with Christ. It's with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know our feeble frames. None of this is a mystery to you. None of this is a surprise. It's not like we can catch you off guard with the evil that we're thinking of or how poorly ordered our lives are or how much of a mess we are. 
And we ask, O oh God, that you would forgive us, not because we deserve it, but forgive us because of Jesus. And we ask, O oh God, that you would teach us what discipleship is supposed to be. We thank you in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing 207. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. I love this. With great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen.